Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and alcoholism. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. In August 1968, four men hopped out of a single-engine bush plane and onto the frozen plains of Greenland. As they unloaded their gear, they looked around. All they could see was water, ice, and jagged hills. The pilot told them he would be back in two weeks. Then the plane sped off into the stark blue sky, and the four men realized just how alone they were. But there was no time to dwell on it. The men, led by Dartmouth professor Chauncey Loomis, were on a mission, and weather was always the enemy. The following morning, Loomis and his team awoke in their base camp to find the blue sky blacked out by dark clouds. It was now or never. Luckily, it didn't take them long to find what they were looking for. A stone mound, a wooden headboard, and a brass marker. The marker read, Sacred to the memory of Captain C.F. Hall of the U.S. ship Polaris, who sacrificed his life in the advancement of science on November 8, 1871. Chauncey Loomis had come to the Arctic to solve a century-old mystery. Did Charles Francis Hall, commander of the Polaris expedition, die of natural causes, or was he murdered? This is Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories, a Spotify original from ParCast. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Tuesday, we dive into the world of a real unsolved murder and try to solve the case. You can find episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. Today's episode covers the mysterious death of Charles Francis Hall. We'll explore Hall's mission to discover the North Pole and investigate whether his sudden death was a natural consequence of the Arctic or something more sinister. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. The 19th century was a time of exploration in the West. Americans and Europeans traveled across the globe, seeking the unknown. And perhaps the most dangerous uncharted area on Earth was the Arctic. 
For Charles Francis Hall, exploring the region became an obsession. Exactly when Charles became interested in it is a mystery. According to biographer Chauncey Loomis, he was, quote, ambitious, moody, irascible, restless. Perhaps he always wanted adventure. And by the end of the 1850s, all Charles could do was read about the Arctic. He was obsessed with the 1845 British expedition led by Sir John Franklin. He and his team tried to chart a trade route through the Arctic Ocean. Unfortunately, the excursion was a disaster and roughly 129 men vanished. Even though these men had been missing in the Arctic for at least a decade, Charles foolishly believed they were still alive. He made it his mission to find them. In 1860, Charles raised enough funds for his own expedition, and in May, he headed north, hoping to find survivors. But he didn't find anything, even after two years of searching. Still, the trip wasn't a total loss. He learned he had a knack for surviving the unknown, adapting to severe weather conditions, and mapping out new territories. By the time he returned to civilization, 41-year-old Charles Francis Hall had become a self-taught explorer. Not long afterward, Charles returned to the Arctic. He lived and hunted among the Inuit, from whom he learned how to drive a dog sledge. For five long years, he traveled by sledge across 3,000 miles of northern Canada. Ironically, the only skill he didn't seem to fully develop was sailing. He could hold his own in the Arctic, but he still required experienced sailors to navigate the treacherous frozen waters. But learning to become a capable captain was the least of his worries. Especially since on the second voyage, Charles discovered skeletal remains he believed were from the 1845 Franklin expedition. He took this to mean everyone had died. And if everyone died then it meant no one had reached the top of the world. So when Charles returned to the U.S. in 1869, he had a new mission, become the first American to plant a flag on the North Pole. He knew a trip to the North Pole would be ambitious and costly. In the past, he'd relied on donations from wealthy benefactors. However, this expedition would need even deeper pockets. He turned to the United States government for help. In January 1870, Charles traveled to Washington, D.C. and launched his one-man crusade. He met with a flurry of lobbyists and politicians, all of whom seemed interested in his Arctic project. Soon, Charles caught the attention of President Ulysses S. Grant. After a short meeting, Hall was asked to speak about his proposed quest at Lincoln Hall in front of Grant and several members of Congress. My fellow Americans, we are on the precipice of glory. Never before has an expedition traveled so far north and succeeded. The Union has just withstood its greatest test. We have fought a bloody civil war and come out victorious. Close your eyes and picture what it would look like, seeing old glory flapping in the wind at the very top of the world. To the members of Congress, I ask one simple favor. $100,000 for this glorious crusade. An American should be the first to reach the North Pole. (laughs) 
On March 8, 1870, Congress entered a joint resolution for Charles's request. For the next three months, they debated the feasibility and merits of such an expedition. Was it worth appropriating $100,000 when that money could be used for reconstruction? And was this mission more of a geographical conquest or a scientific one? Some congressmen argued that Charles should get to the North Pole as fast as possible. They wanted him to claim the land for the United States and tap into the lucrative whaling grounds nearby. Others preferred for the expedition to move slowly, observing and studying the Arctic along the way. The unique environment was the main draw for them. Actually reaching the North Pole could be an afterthought. Finally, on July 2nd, 1870, the Appropriations Committee reached an agreement. Charles was nervously waiting outside the door of their chambers when he got the news. Around 5 p.m., a clerk approached Charles and handed him a piece of paper. It read, North Pole, $50,000. Though it was half of what he asked for, it would be enough to finance a ship and a crew. Soon, Charles would embark on the most important venture of his life. Over the next year, Charles prepared for the expedition in earnest. He acquired a ship and retrofitted it to withstand the icy northern waters. He christened it Polaris. Next, he had to find a crew, and he needed it to clarify the purpose of the expedition, which still wasn't fully defined. If Charles had his way, he probably would have stuffed the crew with skilled sailors and navigators the kind of men who could get him to and from the North Pole as quickly as possible. But the government wanted him to take a scientific corps along as well. The National Academy of Sciences recruited a team of researchers. They tapped a 24-year-old German doctor named Emil Bessels to lead. Charles welcomed them to the crew, but he wasn't pleased when he learned just how much Dr. Bessels and the scientists planned to study. Soon, Charles was at war with Dr. Joseph Henry, president of the National Academy of Sciences. Throughout May 1871, the two exchanged a series of heated letters, arguing over the expedition's true purpose. The National Academy was mentioned in the law. Then there are the clear scientific instructions. It is evident, Mr. Hall, that Congress did not intend for scientific operations to be neglected. I disagree. I understand that the primary objective of our expedition is geographical discovery, so our energies will be bent to this as our main goal. Ultimately, Dr. Henry conceded that geography would be the expedition's primary objective. Charles had won the day, and when he finally met Dr. Bessels in person, it appears that the two men began their relationship on cordial terms. However, the war over the expedition's purpose was far from over. In total, a diverse crew of 27 joined Charles on the Polaris. Less than half were American. Foreigners and immigrants made up most of the crew, many of them being German. There were also Inuit crew members, a husband and wife along with their adopted child, whom Hall had met on his first expedition to the Arctic. Perhaps the most important man on the crew, at least to Charles, was George Tyson. The man had spent the better part of two decades at sea. 
He and Charles met during Charles's first voyage and instantly hit it off. So when the time came to crew up the Polaris, Charles needed Tyson with him. Once his crew and ship were ready, Charles and the Polaris set sail on June 29, 1871. The plan was to pass through the Labrador Sea and enter Baffin Bay along the coast of Greenland. Eventually, they'd float towards the Jones Sound, a narrow slit in the Canadian Arctic. From Jones, they'd head for the North Pole. The course was simple enough, but highly dangerous. In fact, Charles didn't even plan to make it to the North Pole that year. He believed it would take until 1872 for the American flag to, quote, float over a new world in which the North Pole star is the crowning jewel. Unfortunately, the expedition got off to a rocky start. About two weeks into the voyage, Charles made a shocking discovery. It involved the Polaris's sailing master, Sidney Buddington. Oh, for God's sakes, Captain. It was only a little bit of the sweets. I had a longing for sugar. What's the harm in a few extra bites? Our supplies are limited, Buddington. Captain. Captain Buddington. You may be the sailing master, but Congress made me commander. As such, you will do as I say. That means keeping those fingers to themselves. Any insubordination will be met with proper punishment. Is that understood? Aye. Sidney Buddington had known Charles for years. However, unlike Charles, Buddington was a trained sailor, and he wasn't fond of taking orders from someone who didn't understand the sea. He made that known amongst the crew. A few days later, George Tyson, Charles' friend, caught Buddington badmouthing Charles to the rest of the men. According to Tyson, Buddington proclaimed, quote, We're being led by a damned fool. Things didn't get much better for Charles. A few weeks later, the Polaris landed on Disco Island in Greenland to resupply. But once they landed, the Cold War over science and geography suddenly heated up. One of the last men to join the Polaris was a German meteorologist named Frederick Meyer. He was supposed to be Charles's official journal keeper. But when the Polaris reached Disco Island, Meyer told Charles he would not keep the journal because it interfered with his scientific duties. When Charles demanded Meyer follow orders, Dr. Bessels intervened. Bessels told Charles that if Meyer didn't participate in his scientific duties, then he and the other Germans would resign from the expedition. And if the Germans resigned, that meant nearly half of the Polaris's crew would be gone. Charles feared the worst. If half the crew left, the expedition would be over before it really got started. So Charles told Meyer he could neglect his clerical duties for his meteorological observations. Science had won the latest battle. Though tensions ran high throughout the Polaris, Charles had reason to be happy. On the island, he convinced a renowned Inuk dog handler and hunter named Hans to join the expedition, along with his wife and three small children. After leaving Disco Island, the ship sailed to a small settlement called Upernavik, and Charles received some fantastic news. Polaris's original route was to go through Jones Sound, which was slightly out of the way. 
But Charles found the ice conditions in a region called Smith Sound were favorable. That would mean a more direct route. Sources disagree on when exactly Charles learned of this development. In his book, Weird and Tragic Shores, the story of Charles Francis Hall, explorer, biographer Chauncey Loomis writes that he heard about it after leaving Upernavik. However, journalist Bruce Henderson claims in his book, Fatal North, Murder and Survival on the First North Pole Expedition, that it happened at Upernavik. If the news occurred there, then perhaps it explains why Charles may have suddenly found the strength to reassert his dominance over the crew. Men, before we return to our duties, I'd like just a moment. As we're all aware, emotions are high right now. Our journey has been tough, but it will only get tougher. As such, we need to listen to my command. I am the leader of this expedition. Dr. Bessel sows dissent on this ship. If any member of the scientific cabal disobeys my orders, Washington will hear of it, and punishment will be dealt appropriately. Dismissed. Reactions to Charles' speech were mixed amongst the crew. Some looked upon it favorably. Others, like some of the Germans, found it insulting to Bessel's. Charles didn't seem to care whether his crew liked him so long as they fell in line. And as he made his way to his cabin, he couldn't help but feel a sense of rejuvenation. Obedience was restored. Or so he thought. Coming up, Charles takes a sip of the wrong coffee. Every unsolved crime leaves us with a nagging sense that just one witness, one piece of evidence, one additional lead could change everything. Hi, I'm Carter Roy, host of the Spotify original from Parcast, Cold Cases. Every Monday, revisit some of the most puzzling crimes in history. A vast array of offenses that ran cold for decades. From burglary and arson to kidnappings and murder, each episode of Cold Cases pieces together the details of an elusive case. Some eventually had breakthroughs that closed the file, others remain open to this day. Solved or unsolved, you won't know which until the very end. Follow Cold Cases free and only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. And now, back to our story. After attempting to reassert his authority over the crew, Charles Francis Hall ordered the Polaris to continue north. Around the middle of August 1871, they left Upernavik, Greenland, and sailed towards Smith Sound. Surprisingly, the mood amongst the crew had lightened a little. Tensions between Charles, Sidney Buddington, and Dr. Emil Bessels had mostly subsided. 
But then Polaris's good fortune suddenly shifted. At the end of August, it reached the mouth of Smith Sound, and they discovered the region was littered with massive ice chunks. As they sailed deeper, the ice became impassable. As an experienced sailor, Sidney Buddington demanded the ship sail to a safer port and wait out the conditions. But the glory-seeking Charles refused and ordered George Tyson to navigate through the ice flows instead. It didn't take long to realize this was a very bad idea. After a few harrowing days at sea, Charles agreed to turn back. Finally, on September 10th, the Polaris anchored in a small bay near an iceberg. Charles dubbed the bay Thank God Harbor and the iceberg Providence Berg because it provided protection from the gale force winds. Over the next several weeks, the crew settled in. They built shelters and the German scientists even erected an observatory to conduct experiments. Despite the bitter cold, the men remained in good spirits, especially when Charles increased their rations. During this period, men went out on dog sledge expeditions, some for days, others for weeks. Dr. Emil Bessels and Frederick Meyer, for example, spent a week on a hunting trip, so it was only natural for Charles to go on his own excursion to survey routes further north. However, according to later testimony from George Tyson, Charles worried about what would happen to the Polaris while he was away. Allegedly, he confessed his fears to Tyson directly. I would like to take you north with me, Mr. Tyson. I'd be honored, Captain. But... I can't. I don't trust Buddington. Have you noticed he's been partaking in the bottle more these days. I've seen him teeter as he walks on deck, yes. I worry what he might do if the Polaris were to break free from the ice. As much as I would like you with me, you'd better serve the expedition here, observing. If the ship came loose, I know they'd need you. Aye. On October 10th, Charles and three men set off into the wilderness. True to his word, Tyson kept a close eye on Buddington. He noticed that with Charles away, Buddington became increasingly combative. Worse, tensions between the sailor and Dr. Bessels suddenly flared. According to Tyson's later testimony, it had something to do with Buddington's sticky fingers. Where are you? Where did he put it? Ah, there you are. Aha! I knew you were the thief. Give me that. That alcohol isn't intended to be consumed for pleasure. It's for preserving specimens. Be gone with you, Bessels. You're a drunk and a thief. I'll drink what I want, where I want. And there ain't nothing you can do about it. Mind your own business, doctor. After two weeks out in the wilderness, Charles returned to camp in high spirits. He believed they were actually pretty close to the North Pole. He returned to his cabin on the Polaris and removed his wet clothes. When asked if he was hungry, he said he wasn't. However, he could use a cup of coffee. Twenty minutes later, after drinking the coffee, Charles became violently ill. Oh! 
Captain, are you okay? Oh, damn stomach, Tyson. I think I'm bilious. Ugh. Perhaps an emetic, Dr. Bessels. Would that help flush whatever ails the Captain? No. It will only weaken him further. For now, we must let this pass. I shall monitor. Tyson, I should be fine. Come, let us talk about our next sledge out. I want you at my side. But sir, your condition! We leave in two days. But Charles and Tyson didn't go out into the wilderness again. Instead, over the next few days, Charles's condition worsened. The pain in his stomach intensified. Parts of his body seemed to be completely paralyzed for hours at a time. He also dropped in and out of consciousness. Dr. Bessels gave Charles a variety of remedies. He applied mustard poultice to his chest and legs, a paste believed to help with congestion and cramps. He also gave Charles multiple laxatives. Then he administered a clear solution which he told Charles was quinine, often used during the 1800s to reduce fever. Dr. Bessels believed Charles had suffered an attack of apoplexy, today referred to as a stroke. Charles' condition fluctuated. His strength would temporarily return, but at the cost of numbness in his mouth. As he withered away, Charles became convinced that the coffee he drank upon his return was the source of illness. In his delirium, he accused Buddington and Tyson of trying to kill him. However, after a few days of misery, his suspicions turned toward Dr. Bessels instead. Charles suddenly began to hallucinate. He claimed to see blue vapors floating out of his crewmates' mouths. He was convinced Bessels' remedies were to blame. He started to refuse the doctor's help, and for a few days, it seemed like he was getting better. Though his mind continued to wander, he started eating solid food again. Unfortunately, his recovery was only a mirage. On November 4th, lingering effects forced him to accept Dr. Bessel's treatment once again. Over the next two days, Bessels gave him multiple quinine injections. On the morning of November 7th, Charles's breathing became shallow and strained. The Polaris's first mate raced to fetch Dr. Bessels and Sidney Buddington. When the three men returned to the cabin, they were shocked to find Charles sitting up. He looked pale, his head wobbled uncontrollably, and his eyes looked glazed over. He was trying to write in his journal. Tell me, gentlemen, how do you spell murder? I know what you've done to me, doctor. You can't fool me. Captain, I'm- the Water! Give me water, damn you! I know you're all in on it. You, Captain Buddington. I know you've joined that little German dancing master to ruin my expedition. Please, sir, I know not what you mean. Captain, please, let me examine you. Hmm. Dilated left eye, contraction on the right. Captain Hall. You've been stricken with apoplexy again. For the rest of the day, Charles slept. That evening, he suddenly awoke, turned to Dr. Bessels and said, Doctor, you've been very kind to me. 
and I am obliged to you. Then he turned to his side and fell back asleep. He never woke up. Charles Francis Hall died on the morning of November 8, 1871. A few hours after his death, George Tyson and another crewman prepared him for burial. They dressed Charles in his uniform and draped an American flag around him. Finally, they placed Charles in a newly constructed coffin. The entire crew interred him off the coast of Greenland. While some, like George Tyson, grieved Charles's death, others weren't so heartbroken. Buddington was said to have proclaimed, quote, There's a stone off my heart. Meanwhile, according to later testimony by crewman Noah Hayes, Dr. Bessels remarked, Captain Hall's death was the best thing to have happened for this expedition. The crew did their best to continue on without Charles, but it wasn't easy. Over the next few months, the weather went from bad to worse. The crew and scientists spent months battling gale-force winds and freezing conditions. By summer 1872, the weather had finally improved. In August, Buddington ordered his men to set sail and break through the weak ice. After nearly a year, the Polaris left Thank God Harbor and drifted south. Then on October 12th, a sudden storm forced her into a massive sheet of floating ice called an ice flow. In a panic, Buddington ordered the crew to throw everything overboard. As the crew unloaded the ship, a sudden crash rang out as part of the ice flow connected to the Polaris violently crumbled. Tyson, who was on the flow, turned and watched as the anchors holding the Polaris gave way. The force whipped the ship around and sent the Polaris drifting away. Tyson and 18 others, including all the Inuit men, women, and children, were stranded on the ice flow. Meanwhile, Buddington and Dr. Bessels floated off in the Polaris. For the next six months, the ice flow drifted down the coast of Greenland. At no point did Tyson and the others see or hear the Polaris. They were on their own. Finally, at the end of April 1873, a whaling ship stumbled upon the ice flow survivors and rescued them. Before long, Tyson and the others made their way to St. John's, Newfoundland. Word of their survival quickly spread across Canada and the United States. Newspapers ran stories of the harrowing rescue. But the press weren't the only ones interested in their survival. The United States government was, too. After all, it was their money that funded the expedition in the first place. They wanted to know where their investment had gone. And after nearly two years of silence, Washington had questions for George Tyson. Coming up, the U.S. Navy investigates Charles Francis Hall's death. Now, back to our story. On June 5, 1873, George Tyson and the survivors left on the ice floe arrived in Washington, D.C., they were the talk of the town. As new details of their ordeal trickled in, everyone wanted to know why the expedition had failed to reach the North Pole. More importantly, they needed to know the fate of the expedition's commander, Charles Francis Hall. To get to the bottom of the mystery, 
the United States Navy created a board of inquiry. The five-man council was led by Navy Secretary George Robison and consisted of three military officers along with a member of the science community. The first person called to testify was George Tyson. Tyson told the board his version of the Polaris expedition story. He related the ship's journey up the coast of Greenland and to the furthest point the ice conditions allowed them. He also informed them of Charles's two-week sledge journey and recalled just how fast his health seemed to decline after returning to camp. Tyson talked about Charles's sudden illness and Dr. Bessel's diagnosis that he'd suffered an attack of apoplexy. When Tyson heard Charles complain that his stomach was in pain, he asked the doctor if Charles should be given an emetic to vomit any possible poison. Bessels refused, convinced it was apoplexy. Tyson made it pretty clear that Charles suspected he was being poisoned, but seemed to choose his words carefully throughout his testimony. Did he ever talk rationally after he was taken ill? I think about the 3rd of November, after he had been sick for seven or eight days. He got better uh, around the 2nd or 3rd day of November. He talked rationally and went around tending to his business and writing in his journal. He got around and appeared to have the use of his side and leg. He appeared rather strong. He again proposed another sledge journey and said he wished me to go with him. But... He still appeared to be thinking that someone was going to injure him. He was very suspicious. He thought somebody was going to poison him. Did he accuse anybody when you were by? Yes, sir. He accused Buddington and the doctor of trying to do him injury. At no point during his testimony did Tyson openly accuse either Buddington or Dr. Bessels of poisoning Charles. And when asked what he believed Charles died of, Tyson said natural causes. However, Tyson made it very clear that both Buddington and Bessels were relieved once Charles died. Although Tyson knew of the tensions between Charles and Bessels, he focused more on Buddington. I must say that he was a disorganizer from the very beginning. How do you mean? How did he disorganize? by associating himself with the crew, slandering the commander, and in other ways I might mention. Let us have the whole of it. Well, sir, he associated himself with the crew very much, cursing his commander, blaming him, and speaking poorly of him. Was it Captain Hall of whom he spoke? Yes, sir. In what way, particularly? In his own way. I could not describe it to you. What seemed to be the ground of complaint, if any? His ground of complaint was that the captain was not a seaman. He was always among the crew complaining about Captain Hall. Slander wasn't the only accusation Tyson lobbied against Buddington. He also told the board about Buddington's excessive drinking. This included the time Dr. Bessels caught Buddington stealing alcohol. Tyson may not have directly accused the captain of poisoning Charles, but his description of the man shot him to the top of the suspect list. After Tyson, the board interrogated five more men. Many confirmed the details Tyson gave, 
especially concerning Buddington's excessive alcohol consumption and attitude toward Charles. Many also confirm Buddington didn't want to go further north. Even more damning, they said Buddington seemed relieved by Charles' death. But the board needed Buddington's side of the story before they could accuse him of anything. They also needed to hear from Dr. Bessels. After all, he was the one who injected Charles with medicine. There was just one problem. Both men were still missing. No one knew where the Polaris was. After the initial round of testimonies, Secretary Robison organized a search party to find the Polaris. George Tyson volunteered to lead it. Throughout the summer of 1873, the search party returned to Greenland, scouring the place for any signs of life. In August, they came upon evidence suggesting Buddington, Bessels, and the others abandoned the Polaris to erect a winter camp. According to local Inuit, the crew spent the winter there and then left on boats. Tyson believed the men must have been picked up by a cruising whaler. He wasn't wrong, as he would soon discover the remaining Polaris crew was rescued by Scottish whalers back in June, before the search party even left. Miraculously, not a single person had died. With Buddington and Bessels now safe, it was time for them to sit before the Board of Inquiry. Tensions were high. Both men knew Tyson and the others had made an issue about Buddington's drinking. Just as damning, Tyson told a reporter that Buddington had accused Bessels of poisoning Charles. Tyson claimed that as he was preparing Charles's body, Buddington told Tyson to be wary of Bessels because, quote, the German doctor poisoned the old man. When Buddington met with the board, he knew their heavy gaze was against him. Right away, the board asked Buddington about his alcohol consumption, as well as his confrontation with Dr. Bessels. Buddington didn't deny that he drank, nor that he drank from Dr. Bessels' supply. However, he claimed he only took a little. The board also asked about the captain's issues with Charles and the expedition at large. Tyson and some of the others claimed that Buddington loudly disparaged Charles and tried to sabotage attempts to head further north. This included the sledge trips, like the one Charles made. Buddington admitted that he'd made a few comments here and there about how pointless the dog sledges were, but he denied many of the other claims. I never so expressed myself. I have seen that report printed in the papers, but it is not correct. No man in the ship would ever so express himself to Captain Hall and get along with him. I did my very best to get the ship north. I never said anything about not going further north. Of course, the board also asked about Charles's illness. Buddington's answer was simple. Charles thought he'd been poisoned, and he thought Dr. Bessels was responsible. However, he got more vague when relating certain details. Most importantly, he didn't accuse the doctor himself. It's not clear why Buddington refused to officially accuse Dr. Bessels, though. Perhaps he thought it would damage his reputation, which was already hanging on by a thread. Equally as strange, the board never asked Buddington any follow-up questions about his hostile relationship with Charles. 
They might have seen him as nothing more than a drunken blowhard, all bark and no bite. Maybe they believed only a scientist had the capacity to poison Charles. To help with his investigation, Secretary Robison added two military surgeon generals to look into the mysterious illness. When asked what he believed Charles suffered from, Dr. Bessels once again claimed an attack of apoplexy or a stroke. Bessels was then asked what he believed caused the attack. My idea is that he had been exposed to very low temperatures during the time he was on the sledge journey. He came back and entered a warm cabin without taking off his heavy fur clothing, and then took a cup of warm coffee. Anyone knows what the consequences of that would be. In essence, Dr. Bessel said a sudden change in Charles's body temperature caused the stroke, and it was the stroke which caused his temporary paralysis. Of course, the board wanted to know how Dr. Bessels came to this conclusion. How did you ascertain he was paralyzed? Was it a paralysis of both motion and sensation? It was only paralysis of motion after the recovery. His paralysis did not leave until the next day. Motion and sensation both? Yes, sir. Did you try the sensation in the first attack? Yes, sir. I tried with a needle. How did you try the paralysis of motion? I lifted his hand, and as soon as his hand was lifted, it would fall. You had no doubt, then, that it was a case of this kind? Oh, no, sir. There was not the least doubt about that. As soon as the hand would be lifted, it would fall back again. He was not able to support it. The Surgeon Generals didn't push back on Bessel's assessment or treatment of Charles. In hindsight, though, it seemed like the doctor made some glaring mistakes. For example, Bessels revealed that he continued to inject Charles with quinine after his temperature leveled out, but the whole point of a quinine injection was to reduce fever. The rest of the board didn't seem to care about Bessels' take on tensions amongst the crew either. According to journalist Bruce Henderson, Bessels downplayed the interpersonal troubles during his testimony. He admitted catching Buddington stealing his alcohol, but that was it. As for Charles, there is no indication that Bessels told the board he threatened to resign in the middle of the expedition or that he was going to take half the crew with him. The board seemed content to accept everything Bessels described. Yet there were plenty of discrepancies between the testimonies. One of the more confounding mysteries was where the cup of coffee Charles drank before his illness originally came from. Everyone agreed that Charles's steward handed him the cup, but some claimed it was made in the galley for the entire crew. Others said it was specifically prepared for Charles. If it was specifically prepared, did that mean someone slipped in some poison? Well, that wasn't the only major contradiction, though. The crew was also split on where Dr. Bessels was when Charles returned. Bessels claimed that he was in the observatory for over an hour before he came to Charles's aid. But numerous witnesses testified that Dr. Bessels was in the cabin when Charles drank the coffee. Despite these contradictions, though, not a single crewman accused Dr. Bessels, Sidney Buddington, or anyone else of poisoning Charles. Instead, they all claimed he died of natural causes. The United States government agreed. 
On December 26, 1873, they officially closed the case. But not everyone believed Charles died naturally. Too many conflicting details left the death a mystery. And in August 1968, a Dartmouth professor named Chauncey Loomis decided he needed to get to the bottom of it. Loomis and a team of three traveled to Charles's grave and exhumed the body. Because of the frigid temperature, it had only partially decayed. So they were able to extract tissue, bone, and hair samples. Two months after the autopsy, Loomis received his results. Arsenic was found in Charles's hair and nails. It's important to note that at this time, arsenic was a common household item used in everything from medicine to hair dye. So it wasn't cause for alarm if trace amounts there were found in a body. However, according to the autopsy results, Charles's body contained toxic levels of arsenic before his death. The two most obvious suspects are, of course, Sidney Buddington and Dr. Emil Bessels. Both men despised Charles Francis Hall and believed he was unfit to lead the expedition. Buddington hated the fact that Charles wasn't an experienced seaman and may have sabotaged the expedition to get back at him. Plus, everyone knew he'd stolen from Dr. Bessel's medical supplies. He could have easily found arsenic and spiked Charles's coffee. But most sources tend to agree that Buddington couldn't pull off such a scheme. He may have loathed Charles, but he doesn't appear capable of murder. Instead, Dr. Emil Bessels is most likely the culprit for numerous reasons. For one, he refused to give Charles an emetic on the outset of his illness. The medicine would have forced Charles to vomit out the poison. Meanwhile, Bessel's theory about Charles Francis Hall's temperature is completely wrong. According to retired surgeon Richard Perry, quote, a hot cup of coffee will not cause a stroke, not even a hypothermic person, and Hall wasn't hypothermic. He had just mushed back to camp, so he was, if anything, overheated. But if Bessels poisoned Charles, first by coffee and then by his refusal to give him adequate care, what was his motive? Their feud over the purpose of the expedition was fierce, but it doesn't seem like it could lead to murder. Perhaps there was another motive buried in the testimony. Henry Hobby was a German seaman not part of the scientific staff. During his interrogation, he told the Board of Inquiry that after the Polaris had separated from the ice flow, Dr. Bessels approached him with a scheme. Hobby claimed that Bessels wanted to abandon Buddington and the others and journey to the North Pole. He offered Hobby $200 to come with. It's possible that lurking beneath Dr. Bessel's arrogant demeanor was an ambition that matched Charles's. Perhaps he wanted to be the first to the North Pole. Dr. Bessel's never made it, though. In March 1888, he died of a stroke. The same thing he claimed was responsible for the death of Charles Francis Hall. Thanks again for tuning in to Unsolved Murders. We'll be back next Tuesday with a new episode. 
For more information on Charles Francis Hall, amongst the many sources we used, we found Weird and Tragic Shores by Chauncey Loomis, Fatal North by Bruce Henderson, and Trial by Ice by Richard Perry, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories is a Spotify original from ParCast. Executive produced by Max Cutler. Our head of programming is Julian Boireau. Our supervising sound designer is Russell Nash, with Nick Johnson as our head of production and quality control by Lisa Marie Gallegos. Stacey Nemec is our supervising editor, and Derek Jennings is our writing lead. This episode of Unsolved Murders was written by Joe Guerra, edited by Kylie Harrington, fact-checked by Cheyenne Lopez, researched by Mickey Taylor, produced by Joshua Kern, and sound design by Michael Langsner. It stars Joe Hernandez, Nazi Tarsha, Ellie Schiff, and Charlie Wess. Our hosts are Wendy McKenzie and me, Carter Roy. Hi, I'm Carter Roy, host of the Spotify original from ParCast, Cold Cases. Every Monday, explore the many types of crime, the many ways they remain unsolved, and how long it takes to find the answers, if ever. Solved or unsolved, you won't know which until the very end. Follow Cold Cases free and only on Spotify.